that you came into your fortune this evening, would you quit your job tomorrow? I mean, a su- substantial fortune. <laughs> or is your, uh, your work just so incredibly meaningful that you would do it anyway? Some of you might. Um, Solomon, in the book of Ecclesiastes, raises that question, basically, when he starts evaluating whether or not our work can be the thing that gives us meaning in life. He's already ruled out wisdom as something that can give us meaning in life, and he's ruled out wisdom. And so now he's going to ask about work. This is at the end of chapter 2 in Ecclesiastes, if you want to turn there. Um, And you're going to be shocked by this news if you've been listening to Solomon, but he doesn't find that work is very meaningful for us in our lives. As a matter of fact, he thinks our work is more of a cause for despair for us than of hope and meaning. Um, That is under the sun, his catchphrase, by which he means life without regard to God, life without regard to eternity, just taken on its own material terms, work is not going to give you a life, and it's not going to be the source of meaning in your life. And he doesn't say this just to rub it in, since you already know that work uh, is already pretty grinding in a lot of its aspects for most of us. He says this because he wants us to look for meaning beyond the sun, right? That uh, in being reconnected to God and living in relationship with Him, uh, we can see work which is often very meaningless and grinding uh, become a source of at least some meaning for us in our lives. So that's what we're going to look at as we look at what he says here. Let me pray for us first, and then we'll read the Scripture. Father, we pray that you'd give us hope in believing, um, as uh, Solomon seems intent on knocking the legs out from under our other hopes. We pray that you'd give us hope in your Son. And uh, so come, speak to us, meet with us, and do that for us, we pray in Jesus' name. I'm going to read at the end of Ecclesiastes 2 and then a small section from chapter 4. He says, I hated all my toil in which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he'll be wise or a fool. Yet he'll be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who's toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. And this also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of his heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow. His work is a vexation. Even in the night his heart doesn't rest. And this also is vanity. There's nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God, and apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? But for the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he's given the business of gathering and collecting only to give to the one who pleases God. And this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Then in chapter 4, he says, Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and striving after wind. 
The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. And again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, no um, other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil. And his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? And this also is vanity and an unhappy business. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that this isn't the only word of the Lord. <laughs> it wasn't one of his uh, most famous movies, but Jack Nicholson was in a movie 20 years ago or so called About Schmidt. I don't know if any of you saw this. He was a 66-year-old man who was retiring from his work at Woodman of the World Insurance Company and sort of having a chance to take stock of his life. Um, he was an actuary for his whole career at this one company. And it's having a retirement party, they're having a dinner, and you know, there's a few gifts on the side and things, and people are there to celebrate him at his retirement. And a friend of his from the company gets up to give a speech. And so indulge me to read a little bit of a long speech, but it's pretty good. He says, what I want to say to you out loud, Warren, so all these young hotshots can hear, is that all those gifts over there don't mean a thing. And this dinner doesn't mean a thing. And the Social Security and pension don't mean a thing. None of these superficialities mean a thing. What means something, what really means something, is the knowledge that you devoted your life to something meaningful, Warren, to being productive and working for a fine company. Hey, one of the top-rated insurance carriers in the nation. At the end of his career, that man can look back and say, I did it. I did my job. And then he can retire in glory. Well, Warren isn't feeling the glory. <laughs> Warren is feeling the despair a lot more than the glory. As a matter of fact, he would go right along with Solomon in verse 20. I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. And the movie sort of unpacks that as he goes. So it's a curious thing that work doesn't work to give us meaning. Though. Because, you know, we were made to work. The original creation that God made that was good, you know, Adam and Eve were there to, to cultivate the garden, to turn Eden into a worldwide temple, really, for God, the whole creation, to be a place where God dwelt with his people. That was their job, and it was good work. But it doesn't work like that anymore because they rebelled and we do too. And they broke the world when they decided they wanted to live their lives on their own terms instead of on God's terms. And so when God uh, reacted to their rebellion and cursed the world, he singled out work as part of the curse. He said, from now on, um, you're going to get thorns and thistles when you try to cultivate the ground instead of desirable plants. And it's going to be by the sweat of your brow that you do your work now. It's going to be hard now. It's going to be frustrating and vexing now. And we all know that's true. That's our experience in life. Even those of you who like your jobs the best know that there are a lot of thorns and thistles involved in them. And for most people, thorns and thistles seem to be the greater part of your work. So um, what the writer of Ecclesiastes... Solomon uh, 
likely is saying here is um, that this is what work feels like in a broken world. And it's not like you're just doing it wrong or something. This is how work is now. And what you experience is kind of the new normal. And you shouldn't expect anything very different from that. Work is not going to give your life meaning as it stands now. And so he gives several reasons for that. Uh, apparently he's thought about it a lot. You know, several reasons that work doesn't give us meaning. The first one he says is that it, your work doesn't create any lasting influence. You know, you're not going to change the world with your work. No one's probably going to remember you after you're gone. Um, he said, you know, you might make a good succession plan, you know, to give your business to the next person, but they're very likely to not be as wise as you or to have your values or to care about the cool mission statement you wrote with your board of directors that embodied all of your noble aspirations and all that. Um, they probably won't care about that at all. Poor Solomon, he left all he built to who? Do you know his, his son's name? It was Rehoboam. Lost ten-twelfths of Solomon's kingdom in his short lifetime. Uh, he ruined everything Solomon had built. And so, I don't know how old he was, or if this is someone writing in retrospect, but in Solomon's case, for sure, the lasting influence wasn't there. He had to, he had to leave everything to an idiot. Um, you know, you look at some of the big institutions in our country, too, like the colleges that were started around the time of the, our nation's founding that have gone very far from their founder's intent, what they wanted. Jonathan Edwards and Gilbert Tennant, you know, in the early days of the Law College and the College of New Jersey, which became Princeton, uh, had a real different notion of what that institution was going to be than what it has become. Right? And that's true for almost any endeavor you're in. You just don't have control over what happens after you. And that is vanity. And that's why, as Marge Simpson said, uh, the cavemen painted on walls and we scratch our names into Tupperware. Because when we're gone, we'll have something that says, I was here and I mattered. Right? But your name in Tupperware uh, may be about as significant as what you accomplish through your work, too. Which is a pretty dark thing to say, but it sure seems to be Solomon's point. Listen to what Schmidt said. He wrote a letter to a kid he sponsored through Child Reach in uh, Africa, a uh, little kid named Ngudu. And he was, because of his $22 a month sponsorship, he gets to correspond you know, with kids. So he starts writing him letters. And uh, he writes him this to, to Ngudu. He says, what I want to say to you... That's not the right page. That's the right page. He says, uh, when I was a kid, I used to think that maybe I was special. That somehow destiny would tap me to become a great man. I mean, not like Henry Ford or Walt Disney or somebody like that, but someone, you know, semi-important. He says, I got a degree in business and statistics and was planning to start my own business someday. You know, build it up into a big corporation, watch it go public, you know, uh, maybe make the Fortune 500. I was going to be one of those guys you read about, he says to him, uh, the guys you read about. Says, but somehow it just didn't work out that way. You got to remember, I, I had a top-notch job at, with Woodman and a family to support, and I couldn't exactly put their security at risk. Helen, that's my wife, she wouldn't have allowed it. Maybe I could be someone semi-important or special, you know, but probably not. He says, you know, in verse 18 to 20, you're going to have to 
leave this to someone. Don't know if he'll be a wise man or a fool, but he'll be master of all that you worked for. So that's the first thing, no lasting influence. The second thing is the work itself is not very satisfying now. This you may also have observed. Our work's not that satisfying now. He says in verse 22, What is a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow, his work is a vexation, and even at night he can't rest. Does that sound at all familiar to any of you about your work? Sorrow, vexation, and worry. Right, did you read the uh, Studs Terkel quote at the beginning of the uh, bulletin? Flip over there, it's the second one. He's writing a book about work, and he says... The book about work is by its very nature, therefore, about violence. Violence to the spirit as well as to the body. It's about ulcers as well as accidents, breakdowns as well as kicking the dog around, about daily humiliations. Uh, work makes us anxious. Nowadays, it's always been true that it's hard to leave your work at work, but now you've got a phone that follows you all the time, so you're always really at work because they can always get you. Right? And so that's stressful. And for some of you, even these scintillating sermons aren't enough to keep you from having your mind wander to your work week, since this is the first quiet moment you've had in seven days. Right? Um, our minds wander to our work, and they're not satisfied. Work is also isolating, he says. It drives us away from the people that we want to be connected to, or even the ones we say we're working for. You know, verse uh, 7 in chapter 4 one per, or verse 8, one person has no other, either son or brother, yet there's no end to all his toil. Never stops to ask, why am I depriving myself of pleasure in doing this? You know, what's the use of this? And you know that work tends to always at least be a competitor with the relationships we treasure in our lives. You know, how much time do you have to spend or can you spend or do you need to spend at work without neglecting your friendships, without neglecting... Uh, your loved ones, you know, that's always a struggle for us. And then as soon as they pop up at your company and say, we need you to transfer to Phoenix, you're like, well, nobody in Phoenix knows me and nobody in Phoenix knows my children, but it's more money, so I'll go. And now you have to start over with relationships and you're isolated from people that you started to like anyway in Tucson, but got transferred, have to go, and work does this to us. Also, work tends to make you less interesting as a human being so that if you do have time to spend with people, you know, all you have to talk about is your work, which, fascinating as it may be, you know, most of us have a, a limit about how much we want to hear about it, right? And if you work all the time, that's all you have to talk about. I got to play golf with a uh, pro golfer that I'd watched on TV a lot, and I thought, well, that'll be fun. That'll be interesting. It wasn't. Like, all he, all he talked about was golf. I was like... Wow, that, that must get old, you know? That's all he does. That's all he talked about. So, and then, uh, you know, just the, the balance of time with relationships is always hard with work. Fourth reason work doesn't satisfy us because it, it involves other people. And other people are the worst, right? <laughs> would your job be better if it weren't for the people? I know a lot of ministers who would say they would love their jobs if it weren't for the people. And I don't think it's just them. But because people come to work for reasons other than just to do the work and to care about the work. They do it to make a name for themselves, to uh, 
evaluate themselves as better than you or better than somebody else. And that's more of a motivation to them, moving up the ladder, their own self-interest than the work itself. Uh, Solomon's in a bad mood, but he says in verse 4, I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. And that makes it hard to work with people. Right? Because they have motivations other than the ones you might hope they would have. And honestly, you and I have motivations other than the ones we ought to have too. Uh, but if you're trying to validate yourself through your work and get your identity through your work, uh, you're going to be a difficult person to work with. And if you're trying to validate yourself through your work, a layoff is like a death or retirement or failure. These things are like a death. If work was going to make you somebody and it isn't, then you're nobody. And that's very painful too. Um, last thing is that work makes us obsessive. And you may know about this too. He says in verse 5 of chapter 4, um, the fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. That's the despair option. None of this uh, is worth anything, so I'm just going to quit. I'm going to jump off the rat race wheel. But verse 6, he says, better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Two hands full of toil is, is uh, overwork. It's workaholism. All I can do is work. I can't stop working. I've got two hands full of toil and no hands full of quietness. And work does that to us, of course. Uh, because work always kind of comes at us from a religious angle and says, look, if you do the work well, you can make a name for yourself. You can be somebody. You can be righteous and okay and acceptable and presentable if you're good at your work. Um, Henry Ford described it in religious terms in that front of the bulletin there too. He says, I don't think that a man can ever leave his business. He ought to think of it by day and dream of it by night. Thinking men know that work is the salvation of the race, physically, morally, and socially work does not just make us a living. It gets us alive. And Solomon says, oh no, it doesn't. Right? It takes your life. Everyone who tries to work for their salvation, religiously or vocationally, learns that you can never do enough. If you're working to justify yourself, you will never be able to do enough. And two hands full of toil itself isn't even enough. It's what Solomon says here. So some people would uh, take the choice to say, yeah, I, I realize that, so I'm going to fold my hands and rest. And Solomon says, well, those people are fools, although he can understand why they might take that option. Is it really worse to do nothing than to vainly pursue work to give you a life? Uh, not much worse, anyway. They interviewed William Shatner, uh, who turned 90, who seemed mostly to want to talk about his excellent hair. But uh, part, of the, uh, part of the interview, they asked him, what do you know at 90? that uh, you would tell yourself at 20 if you had the opportunity. And he laughed and he said, uh, he said, take it easy. Nothing matters in the end. What goes up must come down. But then he said, if I'd known that at 20, I wouldn't have done anything. Nothing matters in the end. But if I'd known that at 20, I wouldn't have done anything. And uh, there's Solomon in a nutshell for you, right? Um, work is as it is. Um, you can't not work. 
but work is vexing. Here's one last one from Schmidt, writing to Ndugu. He says, I know we're all pretty small in the big scheme of things, and I suppose the best you can hope for is to make some kind of difference, but what, what kind of difference have I made? I mean, what in the world is better because of me? I'm a failure. There's just no getting around it. I mean, relatively soon, I'll die. Maybe in 20 years, maybe tomorrow, it doesn't matter. Once I'm dead and everyone who knew me is dead, it'll be as if I never even existed. What difference has my life made to anyone? None that I can think of. None at all. I hope things are well with you. Yours truly, Warren Schmidt. <laughs> he gets a letter back from the agency after he sends this. It says, um, Mr. Schmidt, and Dugu is six years old and can't read. <laughs> but he sent this picture for you that he drew. <laughs> so, but Solomon, who is the success of successes, says the same thing as Warren Schmidt. Right? Says the same thing. You may have noticed something weird, though, in this passage, especially for the book of Ecclesiastes. Right there toward the end of chapter 2, there was something that started to smell a little bit, for just a minute, like hope. <laughs> did, you, did you notice that, where he says, uh, there's nothing better than to eat and drink and find enjoyment in your toil? That God even gives uh, wisdom and knowledge and joy to us in our toil at times, to those who please him? Uh, this is one of the few times when Solomon kind of pulls back the curtain on the hope that's beyond the sun. That's not just what we have under the sun. Um, he's saying, he's describing more like how we were made to live, created to live, in right relationship with God and doing our work to serve and please Him and thriving that way. He's saying that, that can actually happen for those who please God. And when I hear that, I think, oh, that's good. Oh, that's bad. I mean, for the people who, for the good people who please God, that's excellent news. <laughs> for me, that's not such good news, right? If I pleased God, if I were a better person, then maybe I could find joy in my work, but that's probably not going to happen. You know, that's how I tend to interpret verses like that. But this is the Bible, after all, and the message of the Bible is that there's only one person who's pleased God in his life, and that's Jesus. You know, the one God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. The one who at the end of his life said to his father, I have glorified you because I did the work that you gave me to do. He's the one who has pleased God. When he finished his work on the cross, his last words were, um, it is finished. And Christians know, it's kind of from our gospel reading today, where it said the work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. Uh, that we find ourselves living in the pleasure of God because of what Jesus has done for us, not what we accomplish for Him. We live in God's pleasure because we're in relationship with Jesus, uh, not because we're awesome people. And that's a huge difference, because if you think I'm going to try to be a good enough Christian to get God's favor so I can finally enjoy my work, you're on a treadmill that will never get you where you're going. But if you say... I'm putting my hope in Jesus to be reconciled to God again and rightly related to Him so that then I can approach my work as a calling from Him. Um, and I'll be rescued from some of these pathologies that attach to work. Maybe not completely, but uh, increasingly. 
And at least as a start now, uh, like C.S. Lewis said, death begins to work backwards in the life of a Christian. And it begins to work backwards in your work, too, because you're not trying to make a name for yourself. You don't have to go to work with envy driving you in your work. You can go as someone who knows they're accepted by God already. You live in His favor, so you're like the boss's child when you go to work. I'm here uh, not trying to earn approval. I already have it. And you don't have to try to get significance from your work anymore uh, or to make the work world-changingly meaningful because the Scriptures say that when we work now as Christians, we serve Jesus Christ in our work. And that gives our work an eternal significance. He cares about it. He's put us in the places where we work so that we can serve Him and be about His agenda there. We may not like the jobs very much, and they may feel very mundane to us, but even if you're an actuary and you're a Christian, you've been put there by Jesus to serve and please Him, and He notices and cares about your work. Even though no one else can stand more than two sentences of you describing what you do every day, Jesus knows and cares a lot about it, enough that He's invested your energies and creativity in that job. When He could have put you anywhere He wanted to, the King has decided you serve here for now. And that, that gives your work a significance that nobody else around you could possibly feel if they didn't have that sense of connection to God, to Jesus and their work. And also, what He gives you a chance for, rightly related to Him, is a chance for balance in your work. So instead of two hands full of toil and none full of quiet, or no hands full of toil, uh, eating your own flesh, you can have like one hand full of toil and one hand full of quietness. Right? Actual balance because you don't. Your family's security is not wrapped up in you doing your job perfectly. God is your provider, not your employer. And you can rest instead of working all the time uh, because God is your provider. That's the whole point of the Sabbath. Right? As we stop on the first day of the week and say, you know what? I'm not doing anything. Uh, work is not the boss of me. Money's not the boss of me. I got a lot of things I don't know about, contingencies in my life. I'm a little bit scared about the bills. I don't know about the future. I'm resting today because I can. And I'll get up in, on Monday morning and go grind it. But I don't have to today because I belong to the king. And he gave me today off. Right? And that's pretty beautiful and pretty rare to experience in our work lives. This is why it says in that beautiful song that Sarah sang to humor me before the sermon, what it says in 1 Corinthians 15, that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Just the opposite of what Solomon says. Beyond the sun, in relationship to Jesus, your labor is not in vain. So would you... Uh, would you quit tomorrow if you came into your fortune? Yeah, probably. Right? <laughs> Most of you, I think, would quit tomorrow if you came into your fortune. I thought about it. I thought, well, no, I wouldn't quit, but I wouldn't take as much flack off of people <laughs> as I used to. <laughs> um, but even if you wouldn't quit, you know, the good news of the gospel for us with regard to our work isn't that we have to come up with some groundless optimism to believe that our work actually is really awesome and world-changing because it probably isn't. I mean, the good news for us is that if you do the work that God gives you and you do it for His sake, that you can genuinely find enjoyment and rest in your toil. Now let's pray.